You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for A Veteran Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. The exact number of human beings murdered by the Nazis during World War II remains unknown. But the number is into the millions. Around 6 million people of the Jewish faith, about 5.5 million Russian civilians, about 3 million Russian POWs, 1.8 million Polish citizens, over 300,000 Serbs, about a quarter million people with disabilities, and between 250 and 500,000 gypsies. So-called criminals or antisocial people were murdered, as were homosexuals and Jehovah Witnesses. As I said, the exact number will never be known. A lot of people know about Doc Cowell and Auschwitz, but there were actually 44,000 concentration camps and incarceration camps, including the Jewish ghettos. This morning, you're going to hear the story of one survivor of the Holocaust, Mr. Ted Bogar. I will try not to interrupt Mr. Bogar and just let him tell us his experiences during the Holocaust. Mr. Bogar, welcome to the program, sir. Thank you. All right, sir, starting with your childhood, please begin your story. Well, my name is Ted Tibor Bogar. I was born 96 years ago in a small town in Hungary. I am a Holocaust survivor. I survived a ghetto, five concentration camps, one death march, and one death train. I have an ordinary childhood. In Hungary, anti-Semitism wasn't as bad in the Slavic countries. The town had about 13,000 people, and amongst them was 1,500 Jews. We lived with them together. I attended a Catholic high school. There was no problem until Hitler came to power. When Hitler came to power, the Hungarian government joined him because he promised to return the lost territories from the First World War. But that didn't affect us yet. The first anti-Semitic law came only in 1938, when they fired Jewish workers, retired Jewish executives, but that still didn't affect us too much. But from then on, every year a new anti-Jewish law came. By 1941, got to the point where Jewish merchants did not get any merchandise controlled by the government, which was salt, sugar, petroleum, tobacco, and so on. But we coped with it. Also, Jewish people could not have a female 
servants under 45. Mixed marriages were forbidden too. Anyway, we coped with it as much as we could. The big difference came in 1941. Until then, Hitler was winning the war, occupying Western Europe almost completely. But then he decided to attack the Soviet Union because he needed food and he needed oil. The Soviet Union had both of them. By then, the Hungarian government felt they should have, and they called up every man 20 to 48 years old, including the Jewish men. But by then, they didn't trust the Jews, would not give them a uniform, wouldn't give them a rifle. All they had is a yellow armband. And we used clearing forests, repairing roads, and clearing minefields without any equipment. So their losses were tremendous. Until then, as I said, Hitler was winning the war. But Soviet Union was too big. And after a while, things changed. The Soviet winter came, and the tanks couldn't move properly. The airplanes had some problems. And there was Stalingrad, which was the largest battle, and the first time the Germans started to withdraw. From then on, the Soviet troops were forwarding towards Germany. Then the Hungarian government felt maybe let's get out of the war and try to sue for peace. The Germans found out and they invaded Hungary. That was March 19, 1944. The so-called invasion lasted only one day because the Hungarians were ready to join the Germans. From then on, the Germans ruled Hungary. First, they had every Jew to put on a yellow star on their clothing. There was a curfew from 5 p.m. to 8 a.m. and we weren't allowed to leave our hometown and then confiscated radios, telephones, whoever had. We had no cars yet. That didn't last long either. With the Hungarian gendarmes' help, the Germans came to every Jewish home and they gave us 30 minutes to pack what you can. And they came back half an hour later and took us to a school. We spent the night in that school and the following day we were taken to the next town by the, then the Germans <coughs> established a ghetto there. They simply emptied the worst part of the town, fenced in that part, and they put in 12,500 Jews. They could do it because we had no furniture. And that was our ghetto. We tried to establish some sort of a life. We had a hospital, we had a synagogue, 
and we still had food, but that didn't last long either. Again, Hungarian, sometimes German soldiers came, pick up your belongings, us to a railroad siding where a train was waiting for us. Engine and cattle cars. They pushed in 80, 90 people into each cattle cars. And before they locked the cattle cars, they gave us two pairs. One empty, one with water. Then the train started and stopped and started and stopped. Because any time another train came, they pushed us aside. Our trip lasted for about three days. I don't have to tell you how fast the empty pair got filled and the others got emptied. Again, the train stopped at night. And early in the morning, they opened the cattle cars and they faced already German soldiers. They came with dogs and screaming, get out fast, fast, fast. Leave your belongings there. We are going to put it, uh, take it after you by trucks. It was a long platform. We had no idea where we were. Anyway, they separated the men from the women. And five abreast, we went to the end of this platform. There are several SS officers, including one in a white coat. His name was Dr. Mengele, the angel of death. It was called later. And when we reached them, they looked at you and they put you, pushed you left or right, left or right. We had no idea what was going on. That was what they called selection. Anybody whom they thought can work, stand on one side, children, old people, weak-looking people, even young women with uh, babies in their arms were sent on the other side. They were told that you must be dirty, you have to take a shower. There was a big uh, building there, marked bathhouse. They put them in there, told them, get undressed, make sure you know where you put your clothes. Then they pushed them into the shower room. But instead of water, gas came from the showers. They were killed there that morning and later burned in the crematorium that evening. That was one side. The other side, the so-called worker side, where my father and I ended up, we had to get undressed. They shaved us from top to bottom, disinfected us, and gave us that famous striped uniform. We slept outside, and the first food we got was the following noon. They gave us a large bowl of vegetable soup, a bowl for six men. But they wouldn't give us a spoon because they said Jews are no better than dogs. If you want to eat, eat like dogs. Well, by then we were hungry enough, and we ate. Later on, I often wished that the Germans would treat me as well as they treat their dogs. But they never did. Now this place, we found out later, was Auschwitz-Birkenau, which was the largest concentration camp. 
didn't stay there long because they were looking for tradesmen. And because I couldn't go to university, I learned the trade. I became an electrician. My father said, see what they want. Maybe they give you a better job. I ended up again on a train in a cattle car. A few hours later, the train started. I ended up in Warsaw, the capital of Poland. Now, I have to move back a little bit. You know, Germany invaded Poland in 1939. They later on took all the Jews, put them in two ghettos. Ghettos were simply, again, a small part of the town where they pushed in people, 10, 15 of them in a room, uh, very little food, uh, no uh, possible of washing. So people were dying. Uh, what also happened okay, to be the I, largest... Yeah. Ted, I hate to interrupt you. We are going to our first break. We'll be right back, folks. Please stay with us. Okay. Hi, this is Rocky Blair former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. Okay, folks, we're back with uh, Ted Bogard, Holocaust survivor. Mr. Bogard, please continue your story, sir. Anyway, the Warsaw Ghetto, as I said, was the largest one. Then, uh, with the hunger and us, people were dying. Uh, the Germans said, if you want to work, we can take you to work, give you more food, so people volunteer. They worked for a while, then they ended up in Treblinka, which was another concentration camp, where the lifespan was about a couple of hours. They killed them there. So out of desperation, there was an uprising in this ghetto, and they held the Germans back for almost two weeks. But then they had to give up by then each building was completely destroyed. Now, that was the end of the ghetto. About 1943, the
The Germans established a concentration camp there, where I ended up in 1944. Our job was to clear the bricks of the uh, buildings, pile them up, and sell it to the local population for cheap building material. That didn't last long, because by then the Soviet army was closing into uh, Warsaw, and the Georgians didn't want us to be freed. So they emptied the camp, and that became the very first death march of the Holocaust. Later on, there were hundreds of them. We started out, 5,900 of us, and ended up about 1,200 in our destination, which was get, uh, Dachau. Now, Dachau was the very first camp Hitler established. The minute he came to power, he put everybody he didn't like, started out, communist, socialist, uh, unionist, habitual criminals, uh, some clergy, homosexuals, anybody he didn't like. That was Dachau in 1935-1936. But by 1944, when we got there, it was different. Dachau was the center of the German economy because all German men were in the Army, Navy, or the Air Force. So the uh, German uh, establishment needed workers, which was mostly Soviet prisoners of war and concentration camp inmates. Anybody who needed workers, they called the hall, and the hall is, uh, sent them workers. I didn't stay long in the hall for about a couple of weeks. Then they sent me to a brand new concentration camp, which they established to build a huge airplane factory. I called it Hitler's latest uh, 40 because it would have taken another three or four years to build this uh, airplane factory. And by then, the Germans were losing the war on both sides. But Hitler ordered it, and they started. Now, they established a concentration camp to supply workers for this uh, factory. Our work, our, our work was to carry the best of cement from the train up to the machine. Uh, the best of cement weighed 110 pounds. And by then, we did not weigh as much as 110 pounds. Anyway, to give you a brief uh, description of the camp, the camp was about three kilometers from the workplace. Uh, we had barracks for about 300 men, simply three layers, no straw, no nothing. Uh, by then, we weighed very little. The day of the uh, started, let's say, at 4.15 in the morning when they gave us a half a liter of coffee. By then, each of us 
get a small metal bowl and they give us a spoon too because they realize that we can eat much faster with spoon. And 4.15 wake up call, they give us a half a liter of coffee which never see any coffee beans. Then we went out to work. The work lasted 12 hours, six and a half days. 12 hours in the morning, 12 hours at night. Uh, we were, as I say, carrying the beds of cement up to the machine. But if you slipped and fell into the wet cement, we weren't allowed to pull you out. For lunch, we got a half a, half a liter of soup. For supper, we got a full liter of soup and a piece of bread. At the beginning, he gave us a decent piece, but as the German economy does worse, the bread gets smaller and smaller. So we were dying from overwork, from hunger, and then, because there was no opportunity of washing, we got lice. Real lies with typhus, typhus or typhoid. So we were dying each day. Anybody who died were taken away and replaced by healthy men. Actually, 2015, I went back to Dachau because I, I was invited to be a witness of the trial. There I saw some first statistics and found out that out of the 8,500 men in that camp, 4,000 died. And I don't know whether it was German humor, but the cause of that was heart failure. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> people were dying left and right from overwork, from beating, from typhus. And we had no idea what was going on the rest of the world because it was an occupied fence and guard towers. But we had an idea that the Germans were losing the war. While we were there, they always told us, whatever happens, you are not getting out of here alive. One day, they brought us back from work. Now, uh, usually, we work 12 hours a day, six and a half days. The Sunday afternoon, which was up, we had to stand in line to be shaven or haircut or so on. I think I changed my shirt maybe three times during the year. And I was later on liberated in the same suit I got in Warsaw. I never mm. took it off. I slept in it. I worked in it. Anyway, one day, they brought us back from work during the day. We had no idea what was going on. Once we got to the camp, we saw a train. A train waiting for us. Again, cattle cars. They pushed us in by then 100, 110 because we we were very slim. And the train started and stopped and started and stopped. I had no idea 
what was going on. What we found out later, that because the Serbians wanted to keep their word that no Jew will survive, they wanted to put this train into an abandoned mine. All they have to do pushing the train, close the mine, and leave us there. That would have been very practical and cheap way of killing about 3,500 Jews. But luckily, the Soviet army got there first. So by then, the guards realized that they are in trouble. So they reversed the train. The train came back west. Because the guards felt if they will be prisoners of war, they should be prisoners of the U.S. Army, not the Soviet Army, because the treatment would have been quite different. So two days later, the train stopped again, and we realized we have no more guards. So managed to open the cattle cars, and we saw the first U.S. troops passing by in trucks. They just looked at us. They didn't stop. Because we were all dirty, poor with lice, poor with boards due to vitamin deficiency. But that afternoon, different troops came and took us in to a, an abandoned Hitler Jugend campus. And we realized we are free. They took us into this campus. And they even opened the dining room. And I realized for the first time in a year, I was sitting on a chair. I had a table in front of me. I had a plate. And they gave us supper. The supper was white bread and cream of wheat. So we moved it down and ran to the back for the second portion. Some of us even got the third portion. That's how hungry we were. But what we didn't realize, they did the, the U.S. Uh, soldiers, it was too rich for our system. We all got sick. Close to 300 of us died. I remember just waking up the following day in a big room. By then, I had a clean pajamas, and I was free of life. I stayed there, kind of a hospital, uh, for almost a week. By then, I regained some of my strength and weight and ended up in one of the abandoned uh, buildings. We were about eight of us in a room and slowly we realized that we are three. And we weren't thinking yet, just made sure that we had three meals a day and we were allowed to walk freely. That was a so-called DP camp, which, called, which was a displaced camp. I did not remember thinking. Just waiting for one meal after the other, and 
freely walking around. Until All right, Ted, the- Ted, we're going to our yep. second break. Uh, folks, please okay. stay with us for this very interesting, very uh, historical story. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised to right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmvhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, thank you, David. Uh, Mr. Uh, Ted Bogar, please, yep. please continue your story, sir. Go ahead. Okay, I, as I lived happily in this camp, but in the month of August, a young man came to this camp. He was from my hometown. He was liberated earlier in Poland, managed to get home, and waiting for his rest of the family. Nobody came back, except he couldn't get into his home. There was another family sitting there. You see, Hitler promised that no Jew will come back, so the Hungarian government gave away our home. He was disgusted, escaped Hungary, came back to, happened to be to this camp where he met me. He says, what are you doing here? He says, your father is at home. Oh, if my father survived, go, let's get back to Hungary. I got a few friends, about 12 of us, went back to Hungary. By then there was, there were trains. Took us about two weeks to get back, and I found my father. Now, out of the 1,500 Jews from this town, this town, 64 survived. One of them was my father, who happened to be the oldest one. Now, only then, I started to realize the Holocaust. I didn't know anything what happened outside of our camp. I realized that over 6 million Jews were killed. So I hated the whole world. I hated the perpetrators for what they did to us. And they weren't only Germans. You see, the SS recruited young men from all over Europe, gave them a nice uniform, good food, plenty of drinks. You can kill as many Jews as you want, so where can you find a better job? So I hated the perpetrators, but I hated the rest of the world, because before the war in 1938, there was a meeting called, a Congress called by the U.S. President in Vichy, France, 
Hitler doesn't want Jews. How many are you going to take in? There were 32 countries and the Vatican. It was a resounding silence. Not United States, not Canada, not any of the South American countries wanted the Jews. So later on, that enabled Hitler that I have another solution, which he called the final solution. I'm going to kill them all. Well, he managed six million anyway. But then I realized slowly, hate is hate, regardless who hates. So I stopped hating, but I never forgave. And I realized that surviving the Holocaust has to be lucky. That's all. People will tell you they did this or that. Makes no difference. If you're lucky, you survive. I didn't like Hungary any more than I asked my father, let's get out of here. No, he said, I am too old. He was, by the way, the oldest survivor. So I stayed with him until he remarried. Then I escaped back to Germany, which was occupied by then with four uh, nations. I went to the U.S. part. I wanted to get out of Europe because I didn't want to see it in Europe anymore. Then different consulates, can I have a visa? What are you? A Jew. Sorry. Uh, so it took me two years until Finally, Canada changed its policy. Until then, the policy was none is too many. But by then, the Canadian Jews convinced the government if you let in some survivors, we look after them, it won't cost you any money. So they let in 1,000 youngsters. And I was lucky, I was one of them. In 1948, June, I managed to come to Canada. I ended up in Halifax. Then they put us on the train, and they dropped us in different cities. I ended up in Montreal. As I said before, one has to be lucky. And I felt after the liberation, and from then on, even now, I was always lucky. And I was dropped off in Montreal, where <coughs> the Jewish Congress found us a job, found us a room with a family. That's how I started my life in Canada. I managed to, well, let me put it this way. I felt if I was lucky to uh, survive, I remained with two obligations. One, to ensure the continuity of the Jewish people. So in 1954, I got married. I have two children, six grandchildren, and five great-grandchildren. So I am blessed and I am lucky. The other obligation was not to let the world to forget the Holocaust. So a little later, by the time we learned some English, 
we formed a group, we called the Speakers Group, and we were going to schools, institutions, to talk about the Holocaust. That was about 40-some-odd years ago, and I still try my best to speak about the Holocaust. Because I was very disappointed in one thing. I thought that after the Second World War, which cost over 60 million people, the world learned how to live in peace. But I was greatly disappointed and I'm still disappointed. There are fights and wars all over the place. So I don't know what else to tell you, just that make sure that we will be peace one of these days in this world. I hope so, sir. Uh, Ted, how old are you now? Ninety-six and a half. And tell me about that half year. You're starting to count the half years now, right? Well, they called once for babies and anybody who's over 95. <laughs> okay, Ted. Um, tell me a little bit about your family. How big was your immediate family? Your mother uh, and father? I, I had only one sister. She was 13 years old. And we got to Auschwitz, and they pushed her on the wrong side. And my mother, who spoke German, I said, can I go with my daughter? Yes, yes. That's what I uh, learned from an aunt who happened to uh, survive. So they were, they were uh, gassed at Auschwitz? Yeah, they were gassed and uh, burnt in the crematorium. Actually, and your sister, and your sister was thirteen yeah. years old. Yes. Okay. They how, felt she was too young. Burnt. How, Ted? I guess most people are going to ask you, how can you forgive those people? Uh, uh, such a horrible, horrible thing happened to you and your family. I know you mentioned one time that when you go to schools, they will ask you, do you hate the Germans? Would you respond to that, please? No, wait a minute. Uh, when, I, when I stopped hating, I never said that I will forgive. I always... Uh, I could not forgive for what they did to us. Okay. Nowadays, <laughs> nowadays, when I speak to uh, youngsters, German, Ukrainian origin, or, or someone, and they ask me the same thing, do you hate us? I say, no, I don't hate you because you didn't do anything, but don't ask me to forgive what your father or grandfather did. Wow. 
Okay. What uh, I want to uh, read you something I found, Ted, and let you respond to this. A new survey was just completed, and it, it included 1,000 millennials and the generation called Generation Z between the ages of 18 and 39 from all 50 states in America. It found that it's not just the details that many Americans are unaware of. There are plenty who think the Holocaust never happened or who have never even heard the word before. According to their findings, nearly two-thirds of respondents did not know that six million Jews were killed during the Holocaust. Nearly half cannot name a single concentration camp. And 11% believe the Jews caused the Holocaust, while 12% say they haven't even heard of the word Holocaust before. In this survey, yeah, yes. In this survey, it suggests that nearly two-thirds of the United States young adults are unaware that six million Jews were murdered during the Holocaust. What's your your reply to that, Ted? Well, that's why our group is going to schools and institutions to, to remind the people or, or to teach people that there, there is the Holocaust, uh, that the Holocaust happened. Uh, as far as why people don't want to know it or something, let's face it. Anti-Semitism is the oldest hatred. And it's still going on all over the world. Uh, you know, when they asked Eisenhower, how come nobody bombed Auschwitz? They knew, all knew about it. Well, he said, you know, uh, 50,000 uh, soldiers were killed each day during the war. That was our main purpose, we had to shorten the war. We had no time for the Jews. Hmm. And um, none of the... uh, You see, uh, we managed to listen to the BBC. (coughs) There were a few people who had strong enough radios. Not once ever mentioned about the Holocaust. Wow. All right, folks, we're going to our last break. Please stay with us for the closing remarks from from, uh, Mr. Bogart, Holocaust survivor. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. 
This program, from lawyers to citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support, so please go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Hello, this is Michael Daly with Atlanta Healing Center. We know that addiction is a brain disease. Addiction is a family disease. Addiction is a treatable disease. We have a caring professional staff with over 30 years experience to help you and your loved ones in your recovery. You can reach us at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about anti-car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with Holocaust survivor Ted uh, Bogar. Ted, let me ask you this. During our last election here in America, after uh, Trump lost and the Democrats won, we actually had... People in Congress wanting to send Trump supporters to re-education camps. Um, I was horrified by that statement. Would you like to comment on that, sir? Uh, not really. I, I, I uh, don't know much about it. But okay. I repeat again. Anti-Semitism is the oldest hatred. And it's still on. And it's still on. And, and, and that bothers me a lot. Do you think another Holocaust could happen? Huh? Yes. Do you think, uh, you do? Okay. Yes, uh, uh, and, and not only uh, against Jews, you, you see, Somehow, hatred is one of, one of the strongest feelings uh, what I uh, experienced. Uh, look, uh, look, look all over the world. People are killing each other. Yeah. And uh, I don't know that much about the United States, but um, there are big problems there, too. I think uh, everyone in America was terrified when people start talking about putting their fellow Americans in re-education camps or uh, re-evaluation camps or whatever they want to call them. You do not send your fellow citizens to any kind of camp for re-education. That's pot Paul in, in uh, uh, Cambodian-type communism. Um, I think uh, uh, it's a sad state of affairs when we can get to that point in the United States of America. Uh, Ted, I understand that you, uh, you, you're still active, that you swim every day. Is that correct? Uh, sorry, I didn't hear you now. 
I understand you are you are an accomplished swimmer. You go swimming every day. Is that correct? Yes. That's my relaxation. Okay. Uh, yeah, I also uh, talk in, in camps. And I was in the United States a few times talking to uh, groups. And they, they just look at me. They, they, they are... They just can't believe it. And I tell them what what, what happened. They just and, and these are the youngsters. So let's hope maybe maybe the next generation. Hope for the next generation. But so far, I wasn't <laughs> successful. I, I understand. Uh, they're not teaching much history anymore. It's all revised history. Uh, I don't like our educational system anymore. And like I just read about that survey, um, something like one-third of our population do not think the Holocaust exists or happened, or they don't even know about it. And that is well, really, really uh, sad. I don't know much about the United States, but in Canada, we are trying to get the different government, uh, uh, provincial government, to put Holocaust as part of the uh, education system. So far, they weren't successful. Have you been to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C.? Yes. What did you think of that display? uh, yeah, well, uh, uh, it uh, it would have taken two more days to find whatever I wanted to see. Uh, it's terrific. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think I, I had it, my picture there on one of the walls. Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, among another 1,500. It just so happened that I I I, I saw it. Wow! Wow! I, what I, did what, let me let me ask you this? When you that was your first exposure uh, to the United States military, when they uh, found you and started giving you food and everything, what did you think about the American soldiers? Uh, I wasn't thinking yet. I wasn't thinking yet. But I tell you, some of them threw us some cans. Uh, and I, I got one. I opened it up. There was a small piece of cheese, about four crackers. Then it was a uh, some yellow powder. I Tasted it, burnt my tongue, I threw it off. I found out later that was something to make lemonade, lemonade with. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing which looked like a band-aid, I didn't need it, so I threw it off. And I found out later on that was chewing gum. <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. Uh- when you got to Canada, did, did you speak English or did you have to learn English? 
I have to learn English. Okay. Uh, so, not only English, uh, uh, English and Hungarian. I, uh, by the time uh, I was liberated, I, I spoke quite a bit of German. Oh, I guess so, yeah. And um, I spent almost two years after the war in Germany until I was able to uh, come to uh, Canada. As I say, I went to different consulates. Uh, sorry, we have no uh, quota for Jews. Sorry, we have no quota for Jews. That was always the same thing. Right. Uh, do you have any uh, speaking engagements lined up soon? Are you going to make some speeches soon? Yes. yes. I think it's well, me. Okay. Well, on, on, on Zoom, I think it's uh, in, in Winnipeg. Okay. There's, but uh, the, the Judith uh, situation, what we have now, I, I uh, regularly used, used to speak once, uh, once a week or twice a month. Uh, we have a Holocaust Museum here, and uh, they usually uh, ask survivors to come and speak to those who visited the, uh, the museum. But this is uh, off now, the epidemic okay. what we have. You mentioned your, your children, and especially your grandchildren and great-grandchildren. They are very, very aware of the Holocaust, are they not? Uh, my children, yes. My grandchildren, yes. My great grandchildren, they are too young. Okay. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, sir. Please uh, continue uh, I, this. I, I uh, visited schools where grand, my, in the state where my uh, grandchildren were uh, students. Uh-huh. I, I got and I spoke about the Holocaust. Well, please continue this as long as you can. I think it's very, very dangerous for the entire world to uh, forget about this, not talk about it, not remember it. Uh, it is critical for our survival as a civilized community to remember how much evil can exist in this world and evil still exists today, and I think you are very, very aware of that. Uh, you've had an incredible life, sir, and like you say, you have been very lucky. Uh, and, yeah. and, and go, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I We're always lucky, lucky, lucky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, sir. And, and uh, right now, you are retired. And other than swimming and making speeches, are uh, you active in any other kind of activities? I didn't understand it. The question. Right. Yeah. Well, I, let's say this. How long have you been retired? I still go for a walk every day. Okay. I want to keep in shape. And I hope... The, uh, one of these days, I'll be able to continue talking in the Holocaust Center. Yeah, have you been back to visit either Auschwitz or Dachau? Have you been back to Germany to visit yeah. those places? Yes, 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 yes. Uh, wow. 
2001, I joined the group which is called March of the Living. This is uh, taking a couple of hundred youngsters through the former concentration camps. Uh, March of the Living is to contradict the death markers. So we take them there uh, and try to show or explain what we went through. And um, I tell them also that I am here as a witness, not only as a survivor, because most of the concentration camps are destroyed completely. Uh, only Moidanek uh, and also uh, Birkenola, which they can see what it was. The rest, practically nothing. Just uh, blue skies and, and green grass, which never existed while we were mm. there, because the smoke from the... Uh, from the uh, I can't discuss The crematorium? Yeah. The crematorium, uh, blue sky, and if you found some grass, we ate it. Oh, oh my God. So I always tell them, listen to me, you became a witness too, it's your duty to continue. Sir, I, I thank you so uh, much. Uh, Ted, thank you so much today for sharing your story with us. Uh, God bless you, sir. Uh, wish you good health. Many more presentations. And you keep this story alive, sir, and keep yourself alive. God bless you. Thank you. I try my best. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. All right, folks. Join us next week for another uh, great session here at A Veteran Story. Uh, This is Pete Mecca signing off. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.